Welcome to the PhD Talk podcast. I'm Eva Lansocht, a professor in civil engineering and blogger on the side. And I am Phil Cresswell, an incoming assistant professor in sociology, a recovering PhD student and writer at large. In this podcast, we talk about PhD research and interview current PhD candidates as well as those who work closely with them. I hope you stick around. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the PhD Talk podcast. This is episode 119 and today we'll be interviewing Dr. Kaylin Kiesling. She is a nuclear engineer at the Department of Energy's Oregon National Lab, where she develops the software that other engineers use to design and analyze new nuclear reactor concepts. She earned her PhD in nuclear engineering and engineering physics from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 2022, and she also holds her bachelor's and master's in nuclear engineering from the same institution. Outside of her technical area in nuclear engineering, Killen is passionate about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the nuclear industry, broader STEM field, and academia in general. At Argonne National Lab, she's on a DEI council where she advocates for her colleagues and works with leadership to make impactful changes. Outside of work, she enjoys spending time with her family, her husband, and almost four-year-old daughter, and getting lost in one of her many hobbies, which, from what I can see here, is usually some form of crafting or gardening. So with that introduction, Kaylin, can you tell us a bit about your background and career path? Sure. Um, so I spent 11 and a half years in school at University of Wisconsin-Madison um, studying nuclear engineering. So that's a really long time. Uh, I, I had always been interested in engineering, but... Um, and originally I was interested in chemical engineering. And the reason I ended up in nuclear is only because it did not require me to take biology um, as an undergrad. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, most people in my field have these um, inspirational stories about what motivates them to be here. And I was like, I just don't like biology. Uh, so that's why I ended up and it worked out okay. So um, I studied nuclear engineering and I specifically do computational nuclear engineering. So I design software and tools and um, a lot of people in my, in my computational field will also do analysis. I don't do much analysis. I just design the tools and the methods for other people to use. Um, and so as far as my career path goes, so I went, spent 11 years in school studying um, bachelor's, master's, PhD, and then um, right out of school, I got a job at Argonne National Lab. Um, and so that is where I'm at. I did a couple internships while I was in school um, that helped me solidify that, but yeah. You did a, a bachelor, master, and and PhD all at Madison? Yes. Okay. And are you from, are you like a Wisconsin local? Uh, yeah. So I grew up in the Milwaukee area, um, which is about an hour away from Madison. Um, I ended up at Madison kind of very last minute. Um, and my husband is also a graduate of Madison. So we met in undergrad freshman year. And by the time we were thinking about grad school, and, and all those things, um, we had the two-body problem to work out, and our timelines didn't quite align in both of our fields. Um, he's in a field very closely related to mine, um, and it was available at Madison for both of us, so we decided to stay there. So, yeah, very uncommon to do all three in one place, but it, it's what worked out for us. Yeah, I mean, cause, so I, I did an undergrad, an undergrad in sociology at Madison, and, um, oh, really? and I, mean, I remember being actually told, basically, you don't do grad school where you do undergrad uh, yeah this was like the rule we we cast you out and then you will never get a job at madison if you do grad school at madison was the uh, yes. 
was the next, yes. the next level. Yeah, so, yeah. I, we were told the exact same thing. And actually my <laughs> husband's mom and stepdad are professors at the University of Minnesota and they both warned us. They said, you need to go somewhere else. And we were like, it's just not gonna work out. So that's where we ended up. And my advisor also said, well, if you ever wanna come back to Madison, you have to go somewhere else first at the very least. Yeah. So yeah, got the <laughs> same really lectures. Yeah, and then I moved to Sweden where many people operate under the assumption that they will do a PhD and get into a job where they did their PhD. Um, and you had these lineages of, of professors kind of. Interesting. So it's, it's very much, it's very different here. So well, anyway. And just a curiosity question, are the, is the Argonne National Lab also close to, uh, it, geographically close to where you did your studies or did it require uh, logistics uh, and moving? So it did require moving um, for the field of nuclear. It is considered very close. Um, it's about a two and a half hour drive from Argonne to uh, Madison, Wisconsin. So we did move. Uh, however, for nuclear engineering, it's the closest to our home families that we could be um, mm -hmm. and still have a, like a fulfilling career. So um, I'm working at this national lab, which is, you know, two hours from my parents in the Milwaukee suburbs. And my husband's family is in Minneapolis. So it's a bit farther, but it's, it's the closest we could be um, for our field. So yeah, it's local in quotes. So you already mentioned that your work currently is mostly software development. Mm -hmm. um, during your PhD, did you also focus mostly on theoretical, numerical studies, or did you also have a lab component during your PhD or during your master's? Um, yeah, so my PhD is computational nuclear engineering. So I think engineering is a little bit different than your traditional science fields is you still do experiments, you still come up with like a method and a hypothesis and a design and, and run your analysis to make sure your method works. Um, but it's not like a, it's not like a, a wet lab, you know, mm -hmm. so especially in computational, you don't have that lab hands-on component, everything's on the computer. Um, but in engineering specifically, you, it's theoretical in the sense that, you know, you're not running those experiments, but it's also a focus on the methods development. Um, so so it's, it's a really engineering and, and all that. And so you just have to prove that your engineered method works. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's my focus. And in terms of the software that you use for the computational work, is that commercial software? Is that software that you develop, that your university research group developed? How, how how do I need to understand this? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, the research group that came out of um, out of Madison, we developed open source software and we contributed to different projects, but we mostly um, we mostly developed our own software, all open source, and it is used by um, other researchers and scientists um, and you know maybe some industry folks. Um, and now that I'm at Argonne National Lab, I work on the software that we provide um, from Argonne. So it's all in-house development here and people at Argonne use it, but also we support a lot of industry users as well. So um, we're working with companies who are designing reactors and trying to meet their needs with like the type of analysis they need to be doing. Um, so it's it's direct in support of new, de new designs for industry. 
see. All right. So looking now at the PhD program that you did, um, what was the timeline? How many years was it? And what were the major milestones along the way? Sure. Um, I will put a disclaimer here that I took longer than most people because I had a baby during grad school and then the pandemic. Um, So my timeline for a master's and a PhD together um, was seven and a half years. Most people do it more in like five to six years for our program. Um, So kind of unusual for, I think for all of University of Wisconsin, um, especially in our field, is that you have to take a lot of classes still as a grad student. So your first three years are primarily focused on taking classes and doing what we call the qualifier exams. So at the end of your first year, right before you start your second year, um, you take your written your written qualifier exams and you do an oral qualifier. So it's like two full days of exams, um, very intense and not at all you know, scary. Um, and then usually by the end of your third year is, is where that's what they say on paper is like end of your third year, you'll do your preliminary exam. I think I did mine closer to four and a half or five years. Um, and that's where you have kind of done your initial preliminary setup of your work to show like, this is what I'd like to do and investigate further. Um, and you present it to your committee and all that. And it's, it's I think, a little more involved than most other prelims um, that people do in other programs. And then after that, you are dissertating and you work until you're done, I guess. So those are the mm-hmm. milestones. And for the qualifying exam, is it centered around various courses that you have taken until then? Or is it centered around reviewing certain articles? Yeah, that's a great question. So our qualifiers are centered around your course knowledge. So Mm -hmm. we kind of have a very diverse subject area um, and where people come from. So it's very common in nuclear for people to come from different engineering or science backgrounds and not necessarily in nuclear undergrad background. So they will, you take um, your qualifier exams in a set of three subject areas that you choose. Um, So it'd be like modern physics, classical physics, um, nuclear, math, I can't remember them all. So you kind of get to choose and that's what you take your exams in. Yeah. And it's all based on undergrad knowledge. Mm-hmm. And for the preliminary exam, does that require write, writing a report as well and then defending it or presenting it or how does yes. that work? Mini defense. Um, mm-hmm. So you write your preliminary exam, which is essentially just the shape and form of a dissertation. Um, except for it's called preliminary exam on it. And it, it's written as a proposal. And so I think mine was like 40 to 50 pages long. Um, and a lot of it, because a lot of it is your background information, you get to reuse it for your actual dissertation, which is nice. Um, but yeah, you have to write that. You send it to your committee and they read it. And then you also do your presentation and the presentation takes about an hour. Um, and the committee is internal to the university fully? Um, doesn't have to be. Um, I, I don't know where the rules are for different departments across the university. Mm-hmm. For ours, you had to have a certain number of people who were in the department on your committee and you had to have a certain number of people who were outside your department. But that could mean in a different department in the university or it could mean external. So I had um, a couple of people from another national lab on my committee. I see. And 
Timeline-wise, since you got your PhD in 2023, which parts of your PhD coincided with the pandemic and how did that influence what you were doing? Um, yeah, so I, I think of my PhD more in timeline with having a baby and then my baby in timeline with the pandemic. Um, <laughs> so, so I had um, a birth of my child in May 2019, and I finished my preliminary exams in April 2019 at eight months pregnant. Um, so that was all pre-pandemic, right, because mm-hmm. that started in 2020. So um, it was funny because I actually told my committee, I was like, please make time for scheduling because if I don't get this done by this date, I'm going to have a baby and it's going to have to wait like six months. So mm-hmm. um, turns out people really open up their schedules when you say I'm eight months pregnant. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, so I did my prelim uh, before the pandemic and then had my baby. I went on leave, had my baby um, came back and was dissertating and just trying to finish up in a couple months after you know, I finally got back into the swing of things. Um, and then the pandemic hit in March, 2020. So I was still, I was just ABD for the whole pandemic until mm-hmm. things finally like kind of settled and I felt like I could work. So. And how did that, how did your university deal with funding in terms of people who were struck by the pandemic like you? Was there an extension of BG contracts or was um, that... Yeah, so I kind of had a flexible situation already. Um, I was on a fellowship from the university. um, Mm -hmm. So I didn't have, I didn't really have milestones I had to report on. So the fact that my progress kind of all but halted um, was, was okay, um, inflexible. I didn't ever hit the time, I didn't ever hit like the time limit on like them saying, hey, you haven't finished your PhD yet. Like, please submit a written reason why I never had to go through that. Um, So I think overall, you know, it was up to, it's kind of up to your funding source, I think, to determine, you know, timelines and extensions, but I didn't really have an issue with it taking longer other than my own personal desire to want to have it done, but it wasn't a funding issue necessarily. Mm -hmm. That's good to hear. Now we already looked at the fact that you, stayed at at Madison uh, for your PhD and that that was also family related. So I think um, I will skip the question on how you selected your PhD program. But um, I also had a question on how you found your position after your PhD. Did you, what are some tips for people looking for a job after their PhD and how did you find your job in particular? Okay. Yeah, um, that's great. So my tip and it's going to sound so cliche but it is so important is networking and knowing people and Mm -hmm. i think that that is said all the time and people are like what does that even mean right but it is so important to know people because i feel like most most jobs come up coming out of grad school at least in our field are because you know someone um and so actually for (laughs) My case is very unusual, I will say. Um, so I was, you know, ABD still trying to finish. We were in Madison. Um, we didn't have childcare, so we were trying to alternate. We're working on our PhD was not going well. And then one of my friends who had just gotten a job at Argonne, um, him and his wife were like, why don't you come move by us and we'll help watch your kid while you finish your PhD? And I was like, why not? Let's go to Argonne. Let's see if you know, the people I kind of already know there, if they're hiring or anything. 
Um, so yeah, so I emailed, like just kind of cold emailed them and said, I was like, are you going to be working on, you know, such and such projects? Are you looking to hire someone? Um, and they circulated my CV, you know, right away. And somebody who I knew from when I was an intern here. So I did an internship in 2014 at Argonne. Um, and so met a lot of people and somebody I had known through that internship, but didn't work with directly. He emailed me right away and was like, I want to hire you. Like, let's figure out how to make this happen. And I was like, Oh, thank God. Cause I already live here. <laughs> I already moved yeah. to live here. Um, but yeah, it was, it was because I, I knew people he knew, you know, he knew my work and, and my former boss, um, when I was a man, when I was an intern also re- happened to reach out to me at the same time. and was like, I want to hire you if you're, you know, if you're looking for a job. So it really came down to who did you already know and, and having that foot in the door. So. Yeah, that's great. And you already mentioned that during the pandemic, wrapping up your PhD without childcare was a struggle. Um, so can you tell us a bit more on your path as an academic parent and how then, how being an academic parent has changed some of the ways in which you work and view the world and academia and uh, STEM fields at large. Yeah. Okay. How, how long are these episodes? How much time do I have? Because um, it's the pandemic, being a parent and going through a pandemic as a parent was the just the number one influence on where I decided I wanted to go with my career. Um, so yes i became a parent as a grad student um and at in fall 2019 um i was applying to faculty positions um at various schools and i had interviews set up and actually i gave an interview like the friday that everything started to shut down for the pandemic and um so i was like set to be to do you know, being academic, um, I had had all of that all set up. I had worked for several years in grad school, actually doing like professional development to be in that position. And then the pandemic hit and I was like, okay, well, this is going to take a lot longer. Um, we pulled our child out of, out of daycare, um, because we were concerned about COVID mm-hmm. and we just, um, we just alternated and it went so slow. And I think, I think I added a year and a half maybe on to my timeline because of that. Um, and I just watched all of my friends. Um, I have a, I have a Facebook group called academic mamas and we all have kids born in 2019 and everyone there is a grad student or a faculty member, or, you know, has kind of been in that path, uh, in some way, shape or form. And so a lot of faculty members, and I just kind of watched them all like struggle real hard with how the universities were handling the situation and how they were just kind of you know, paying no regard to the fact that parents are struggling right now. And I was like, you know what? I don't want this life. Um, I don't want the the academic faculty life right now because it's clear to me that it's not really compatible with being a parent, especially now in the COVID times. Um, so I kind of changed my mind. Um, so as a grad student parent, um, this was actually, I think, a really good experience. Um, So we decided to have a baby as grad students because we knew that there would be a little more flexibility um, being grad students. And we were both considering being faculty members. And so we knew that now was a good time to have a small child. And our university provides, or actually our 
College of Engineering provides um, six weeks for non-birthing and 12 weeks for birthing parents, fully paid um, grad students. And you're totally relieved of any duties that you have then. So I had 12 weeks maternity leave, fully paid. My husband had six weeks fully paid. So we thought that's a pretty good deal. Let's take advantage of that. Um, my academic advisor was super supportive in everything um, along the way. I couldn't have asked for a more supportive advisor. Um, so yeah, so my university, my college, and my supervisor really were really helpful um, and supportive there. And also my university provided child care tuition assistance. Um, so if you needed help financially to pay for child care such that you could do your degree work, um, and this was only available to students, you got some financial assistance. So that helped pay for daycare while she was in it as well. So yeah, so Madison overall was a very um, supportive of being that academic um, parent as a grad student. And then now that I'm in, um, I say like an academic tangential role, because um, it's still kind of a research role, just not at a university. Um, I would say my manager here and my um, immediate working area is very supportive of being a parent as well. We have a lot of young parents or parents with young kids, I should say, um, that I work with. So everyone's very familiar with the struggles of the last several years and how, you know, you may have to stop working to have your kid at home. So you know, everyone's pretty good about, you know, being respectful of everyone's boundaries that they have, especially around family life, or, if, you know, you need a little bit more time. So I'd say that's been pretty supportive as well. As a, as a follow-up question, did your university provide some kind of support or did they take any measures for student parents during the pandemic? Um, that is a good question. I'm trying to remember. I feel like I've, I have blocked so much of this time period out of my mind. Um, I don't recall anything changing. You know, I think they already gave some pretty good support with the child care tuition mm -hmm. assistance. So that absolutely continued. However, in order to make use of it, you had to have your child in the child care mm -hmm. for a certain number of weeks. Um, and so when the pandemic hit, we, we didn't get that tuition assistance um, for holding a spot, you know, thinking, oh, we're going to put her back, you know, in a couple of months. And so we couldn't use that. Um, so, yeah, nothing really changed there. But I would say the support that they provided already was pretty good. So. Mm -hmm. And then that was, I would say, the situation during the full lockdown. At, at what moment in time? Did, you, did things change for you? Did you uh, send your child back to, to daycare or, uh, yeah, um, I, I guess maybe not yet school? Um, yeah, she's in daycare. Mm -hmm. She's in daycare. Um, okay, yeah, so we took her out um, when everything shut down immediately and, like, our daycare actually did close down for a couple of weeks at that time, too. Um, and then around May 2020 of that year, that's when we kind of made the decision. We were like okay, it doesn't look like things are opening up again. And if we're not comfortable going into work around people, we're not comfortable sending our small child around other people. So we decided at that point to take her out. And we did mm -hmm. um, almost a whole year like that. Um, yeah, because we moved in May 2021. And in the fall of May, 20, uh, in the fall of 2020, I actually took the semester off. Um, I was having really bad mental health issues because of 
trying to do work while having a small child. And it was uh, me and my husband both, we just really struggled with that, um, didn't make any progress. So I, I took the full semester off with, you know, the blessing of my advisor and he helped me through it. Um, and that's where I was fortunate enough to kind of have this like no strings attached fellowship um, yeah. that I could do that. Um, so I was on the books being paid, but my advisor had no expectations of me, which was really helpful. And so I recouped mm-hmm. my mental health there, was able to get back in. In January, we had um, we had a every other day kind of, you know, working off plan um, that helped a lot. So we actually each got like a full dedicated day to use our brains, which is so important in engineering. It's really hard to, you know, like pick up something for a few minutes and set it down. Um, so, so yeah, so we still at home and then it was in March of 2021 when that was our, my friend was like, Hey, why don't you move down here with us? Um, and so we moved in May, 2021 is when we bought our house and and officially moved. And we did the summer here with, um, some, you know, part-time childcare from our friends and a couple family members. That was really nice. And then finally, Mm -hmm. August, 2021 is when we were like, you know what, we just need to send her to daycare. We just need her out of the house for the full day, five days a week, so we can really focus. And I am not kidding you. I think I did all of my post-prelim work in a three-month time period when she got back into daycare. <laughs> I think as soon as she was in in August 2021, I just like, yeah, I just went right through it. Um, it was insane. So. Mm-hmm. And then I finished in January, 2022. Um, yeah, I did everything in a three month period. So mm-hmm. now while you were speaking, I was trying to remember when my daughter was going back to school and when she got her COVID vaccination and I, I can't really remember. It's yeah. just like uh, this ma- mess of time in the pandemic of survival mode and then sort of yeah. the sun rising after the darkness. And I have no idea what happened in the meantime. Yes, absolutely. And it's, yeah, it, it's such a, like, just a dark period right there. You know, mm-hmm. like, everyone was at home, no one was making any progress. And we didn't, we were on grad student stipends, too. So it's not like we had a ton of money. And so a lot of people I were talking to yeah. were like, well, if you're not comfortable having your child in daycare, why don't you hire a nanny? And I was like, with what money am I hiring mm-hmm. a nanny with? That's not a possibility. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so when we finally finished, this is like the other, you know, the other big moment is we both finally finished and got real jobs. And it was just like a whole new world. We had Mm -hmm. income to be able to live comfortably and our child was taken care of and, you know, in daycare and like just night and day difference all of a sudden. Now changing topics here a little bit, you're also an active DEI advocate. So can you tell us a bit about the state of diversity, equity, inclusion in nuclear engineering and what can be done to improve DEI? Yeah, that's kind of a a broad question. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would say nuclear engineering, like any STEM field, has its issues when it comes to DEI. Um, I wouldn't say there's anything like super specific to the field of of nuclear engineering that needs to be worked on. that like we can we can use all the same sort of things that are hap- you know people are doing in all the other STEM fields. Um, I guess what is specific to nuclear is we have you know looking at gender diversity. We are still like a 
90% male field. Um, so really few women or um, non-binary folks in the field. Um, and also the field kind of is birthed out of, I'd say a more conservative politically um, his history, if that makes sense. So if you think, you know, politics and the age of the field and there's also a gap because a bunch of nuclear shut down um yeah. in the you know 80s 90s there's kind of an age gap so you have some pretty diverse um political ideologies when you look at the older generations in nuclear and the younger generations in nuclear mm -hmm. and you have this gap in the middle um so that that does uh influence quite a bit how easy or not easy or how willing people are to accepting change and implementing change. Um, the current state is that things are actually getting a lot better because I'm, I'm part of that, like half of the younger generation kind of towards the beginning of that generation that's up and coming. Um, and that younger generation of nuclear engineering um, students and early career people is really diverse. It's really great to see. Um, so, the state is that it's getting better. It still has its challenges, um, mm -hmm. but what can be done? I mean, the same things that everyone's doing across all fields, um, listening to the right people, making change when people say, this is how to change it. Um, learning how to be an ally to the groups that you're not a part of um, and listening to that. And then knowing that change comes from a, syst a systemic change from top down it's really hard to do grassroots efforts, right? Like it's exhausting. I've done it for a very long time. I had to stop um, on a lot of fronts. So the making change is that like, making sure that people at the top are, you know, willing to do it. And so I, I actually think it is coming around a little bit better. Um, I would say in the last five years or so, there's been a lot more top-down change um, than we had seen in the past. Now, I also have some general questions that we ask all our interviewees. And the right. first one is, what is your best piece of advice for PhD students? Um, yeah, my best piece of advice, and this is because I learned it during the pandemic, and I, I feel like it was something I was forced to learn in the pandemic, and I value it, um, is that make sure you set your boundaries for work-life balance when you're a PhD student. Um, you are not in grad school to work 80 hours a week. And if your advisor is making you do that, um, then you have an abusive advisor. Um, set those boundaries now, set your priorities now, because that's what you carry with you into your career. And if you end up in a position where you have you know, people under you as, either as employees or you're mentoring students, those values that you bring is what's going to rub off on your students or your employees. And it's a trickle down effect, whether you like, you know, whether you're aware or not, maybe you don't intend to do that. Like, you know, maybe you're like, I know I have poor work-life balance, but don't do what I do. It's just going to happen anyway. So set those boundaries now, set those priorities now. Yeah. And that kind of already leads us into the second question that we ask all our interviewees. And that's how, how do you set boundaries around work? What do we do practically to, you know, put a lid on it? Yeah. Um, there's there's a number of things. So I, I am pretty strict about the hours that I work. Um, you know, I I end my day somewhere around 4.30, kind of depending on what I have going on. I'm like, 
I'm going to pick up my daughter. See ya. <laughs> like, you know, no meetings. I, I won't do any meetings after 4.30 um, unless it's like some really odd big deal. And then I just, I don't answer emails outside of that time. You know, I don't respond to messages. I might read them. Um, it is kind of nice to like, I do have my email and my team's messages on my phone because it is nice. Like if I do have to step away from my computer during the day um, and I want that flexibility, I can check stuff during the day and know when I have to go back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but just because I read your email off hours doesn't mean I am going to respond to it. So I set those boundaries by not having the expectations making sure people don't have those expectations of me, but also not having those expectations of other people. And I certainly am known to send Teams messages at 1030 at night because I decide to come back working because I, you know, need to catch up on something. But I have no expectation someone respond to me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, so that's, I mean, my practical day-to-day, right, is, is setting those time boundaries. So. Mm-hmm. And we've already talked a lot about the influence of the pandemic, but what would you point out as really the main impact that COVID-19 had on your job, your research, and your daily tasks? Oh, man, it completely made me reprioritize life and how I do daily life and what I want in the long run and completely changed what I want out of a career. Um, Previously, I... Felt like I had the motivate, like the you live to work motivation. Um, I really wanted to be that faculty member. That would have been a more than full time job. Um, and then the pandemic happened and it made me realize you only get one life. You only get one time with your kids, right? Like, mm-hmm. t- take advantage of it. I want something that's going to support me there. And um, I miss working with students. Um, I still have that opportunity a little bit at the lab, but. I was like, you know what? I want a job that's going to pay the bills. I want one that I enjoy doing when I do it, but that I can set aside at the end of the day um, and still be have a rewarding outside life. So that's kind of what led me into then looking at the national labs. Um, and I, I, a lot of people still treat it as a live to work situation. Like this is like what they've always wanted to do. And I you know, I don't discredit that at all. I certainly love what I do. But at the end of the day, to me, it's still just a job to be able to live the life that I have with like the people I love. So. Mm-hmm. And the last question that we ask all our interviewees is, what does a day in the life look like for you? Um, yeah, a lot of coding, a lot of sitting at my computer coding. Um, I'll start somewhere between eight and nine, depending on how difficult my four-year-old is in the morning. Um, And I do a couple of days a week on site. Um, Otherwise I'm at home working in my office, which is where I am now. Mm -hmm. So I get on my computer, I, like everyone, I check my email, I check my messages. Um, I will do some coding. I have, you know, a couple of tasks, developmental tasks that I have to work on constantly. Um, I've got a couple meetings during the day here and there. If I'm on site, we do um, we do group lunches, which is really nice. I get to converse with my um, mm-hmm. work group and everything. Um, but yeah, it's just a lot of coding and meetings. That's all it is. Mm-hmm. So. And how long is your commute usually from your home to your workplace? 
So from my home to work, it's about 20 minutes drive. Um, really not that bad. Uh, but we actually just switched my daughter to a new daycare and it's 15 minutes in the opposite direction, 15 minutes back and then 20 minutes to work. I see. So that adds to it. But me and my husband, we, we, um, we each share that duty. So one of us does pick up, one of us does drop off. But yeah, I do in the morning. It's, it's kind of a long commute. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So that concludes our interview for today. Thank you so much, Kaylin, for joining us. And with that, I also would like to thank all our listeners for listening today to today's episode. And we'll be back next week with more on PhD Life and Research Mechanics.